is Liren Baker, and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Molly Chester of Apricot Lane Farms. You may know her from the award-winning documentary, The Biggest Little Farm, which shared the inspiring story of how Molly and her filmmaker husband, John, left the urban jungle of LA to purchase and rehabilitate a neglected piece of land into a lush, biodynamic farm. She just recently published the Apricot Lane Farms Cookbook, which brings the bounty of the farm to all of us. I am so pleased to welcome Molly to the podcast. Hey, Molly. Hi, how are you, Liren? I am great. I realized as I was introducing you that I was saying apricot. Is it apricot or apricot to you? I think both are perfectly legit. I say whatever flows out at any given moment. I think I usually say apricot lane farms, but that is totally arbitrary. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because yeah. I, re- I realize that I go back and forth too between the two pronunciations. I think a lot of people do. It's pretty common. <laughs> wow. One of those little things that you never really noticed until, <laughs> until you're on a podcast uh-huh. interview. So I always start by asking, what's the first thing that you ever cooked and about how old were you? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I I know that when I was somewhere in the neighborhood of like nine, 10, I started to make connections that what I ate affected how I felt. And we were in the middle of the eighties and my mom who did cook for us, she w- we would have meals together every night, but she was definitely a product of the eighties in that there was a lot of like canned and kudos bars and Cheetos in our lunch and things like that. And so I would ask her, hey, mom, I'm going to go pack my lunch today. And I would go out and I would like chop up little olives and make little salads and things because I could tell that when I ate that, I felt a little different. So that was the beginning. But then I also remember when I was in college, I started to realize, oh, I have to make my own food here. But my first attempt there was not quite as wholesome. And I I made a, uh, a boxed blueberry muffin. (laughs) Very 80s. (laughs) Totally 80s. Well, when you said kudos bar, my mind went, whoa, I haven't heard that in forever. (laughs) Right? I know. Yeah. They're the Pringles, the kudos. It was, it was all there. Yeah. All the yummy packaged foods. (laughs) Oh, the 80s. (laughs) Would you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what life looked like before you threw yourself into farm life? Yeah, sure. So I, let's see, I grew up kind of a suburban life. And then I went to a technical school to study business for college to Georgia Tech. And then I didn't want anything to do with that. So I dove into the thing I sort of had a small inkling I liked, which was the entertainment industry. And Mm -hmm. so I worked as a producer for a blip. And I think looking back, There were two reasons why I did that, one of which was I got to meet my husband, and the second of them was I got enough of a background that now having film teams around and things for this Biggest Little Farm and an upcoming series we're doing is like not foreign. But I definitely, while I was doing it, was not, um, it wasn't for me. I knew that it had an expiration date. Mm -hmm. And so I started cooking on the side because I was a little lonely. I had moved to Baltimore with my husband and just didn't know anybody. And so I started finding my connection to just, you know, something through food. And, uh, we also had planted a garden, which I, it was my first, my husband was the one who kind of introduced me to, 
gardening and just more outdoors in general. And I sort of was like, oh my gosh, this is what I am. And I didn't even know it. And then in that, it led me to wanting to go to culinary school. So I went to a school called the Natural Gourmet Institute of Health and Culinary Arts in uh, New York City in Chelsea. Mm -hmm. And there I uh, learned about 60% how to cook and 40% you spent in the classroom learning the health supportive aspects of food. And I really absolutely totally enjoyed it. Whereas college was kind of like, oh, I don't really want to go to class. That experience was the exact opposite of finding my people. Then got out of there, private chef for a while. And as I went deeper into what health, healing food really meant to me, because that was the reason why I was even interested in cooking in the first place, it became about the choices the farmer makes. And once I got connected into searching for different farmers who would produce the type of food I wanted to cook with and feed my clients, I started to realize there were some holes. I couldn't find really great eggs. And we talked about, what if we do this and start like with like 10 acres? And then we met our partners and it blew the idea into something much larger than I had ever anticipated. I used to say, I want one lemon tree in my backyard. <laughs> we lived in California. It was like, I just want a lemon tree. And so we we overshot the mark. <laughs> but I'm uh, happy to have many lemon trees in my backyard now. It's so funny that you say that because I'm always like, I would like one fig tree, yeah. one lemon tree, one persimmon tree. I would be happy with just one of each. Uh, that's amazing. You and might I, need more yeah. for pollination, but that's okay. Not all of right. them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like the Noah's Ark approach, but look at you have like a complete bounty. I think it's so interesting. Did your husband, John, have any farming experience? It sounded like he was a little more outdoorsy. Yeah, he did. He grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland and there uh, he had some family members who had farms. So throughout his 20s, he spent time on these farms. You know, it was much more conventional and it was like not monocrop, but it was like a lot of tomatoes or, a, you know, corn or whatever it was. And, but he did learn to like drive a tractor, had some familiarity in that way. And he would do that in between making his documentaries. But then, so when we moved here, I really, my only connection into what we were doing was that through understanding the gut microbiome and how that is really parallel to the experience of the soil with being the earth's gut. I had an understanding of how things work and the importance of nourishing that mm -hmm. coming into it. And then I had the kind of, here's where we want to go vision. And then John really had a lot more of that nuanced understanding of ecosystem in that he was just so connected to the wild world and spent a lot of time growing up camping and just going to Assateague Island in the Eastern shore. And he really was protective over our wild spaces. I remember he went out of town for a bit in the beginning for a project he had already committed to and some trees were cut down and it was like the worst thing to happen for my husband. And it really taught me a lot of like, oh my gosh, yeah, what is going on? Why are these coming down? They're precious. And so, yeah, so we are combined knowledge banks. Then I, over the years, have gained knowledge of the wild spaces and the understanding of ecosystem further. And my mm -hmm. husband has gained continued knowledge about like food and the soil and all of that.
<laughs> yeah, I love your parallel between gut health and soil health. I think those are two very important and connected ideas. Totally. Maybe you could explain to everybody what biodynamic farming is, maybe first of all, for those who aren't familiar. Sure, yeah. Biodynamics is a, a tool, essentially, of um, the way that it, it real, really the way that we farm, and really anyone is actually farming, if they're farming from a place of connection, is that connection to their land and just the natural world. That's really what it is. And then there's all these other tools to help you enhance that connection, biodynamics being one of them. It is an approach we found because we were originally, I, at that point, I really only knew of, of organics. There wasn't a thing called regenerative back then. So I knew I wanted to head at least there. But then in researching it, you find out that though it's a great thing, it's really telling you, you can't use these chemical fertilizers and sprays, but you can use these less toxic versions of that. And it did it didn't have that evolution. It didn't have it didn't inspire me, basically. Uh -huh. <laughs> it came down to. And then I had heard of biodynamics. So I, I went and found Demeter, which is the certification organization. And it was immediately inspiring to me to read their kind of standards because it introduced things like the ecosystem and reserving. 10% of your land to native natively flower, which for us, like we have a habitat restoration team that literally just works on our wild spaces to enhance those, to support the wildlife integration and the beneficials to be able to come to our land. It does, and then it goes further to have these preparations, which is um, actually kind of a small part of biodynamics, but it's an interesting part because it's essentially like you how we use herbal medicine or homeopathy for our bodies it's kind of that version for that same thing for your land so it teaches you how to make these different tinctures and preparations that then you apply in homeopathic doses similar to how we might take nettle tea to stimulate iron absorption in our body you might use a nettle preparation to be able to to unlock those nutrients inside of your soil and compost pads. It also brings in the cosmos in a very interesting way. And that's something that really interests me. I mean, we all are affected by the moon cycles and it's just the knowledge bank of going further than that into mm. our planets and other things in the cosmos is really just interesting. And like, wow, you could do that for many lifetimes before you figure that out. Wow. Gosh, that just seems like a lot to wrap your head around. You know what I mean? Like, I just think, wow, there's just so many ways to approach growing something. But when you think about it as involving like the moon cycles, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to consider and a lot of work, especially considering how big your farm has gone. First of all, if anyone has never seen the documentary, they really should. Number one, it's Aww. inspiring. Number two, it's very entertaining. Um, <laughs> but tell us about Apricot Lane Farm now. What are you growing? How big is it? What animals are are you raising? Sure. So it's 243 acres. I think now we just added a little piece to close off an easement. And it's fun because that piece is as dilapidated as the land was here when we started, if not a little more. I mean, it's really, oh, wow. it's quite a cement yard there. And we're thinking about adding a different dynamic to it of like um, old growth forest, which would take many, many generations to be able to fully actualize. But 
uh, something to start. But anyway, so Apricot Lane Farms is, like I said, 243 acres. We have diversity is something we really embrace. You don't have to be as diversified as we are to be able to create kind of ecosystem farming, but we do have um, over 75 different varieties of fruit trees. We have, wow. um, we grow any, I would say, 150 different things out of the garden at any one given time with different varieties, including varieties and things. We have sheep, chickens, cows, pigs, ducks. So a lot of animals and those animals are really important to us because mm -hmm. as you get into farming, you realize there's two ways to fertilize your land. And one of which is using petroleum-based fertilizers, which is not our choice. And the other is really animal input. And so once you kind of embrace that concept and it's really that those animals become very, very purposeful. Yeah. They have many jobs, those animals. <laughs> so the book, the book is beautiful. I was telling you before we got on the call, I love it so much. So seasonal cooking is so important, especially when you're working with the ingredients that you're growing and producing. So firstly, if maybe you could describe how the book came about, and what are the biggest lessons that you can share when it comes to seasonal cooking? Yeah, sure. The book came about, uh, it really, as we discussed earlier, the culinary side was really such an impetus to how we are here today. And I had written, I wrote a book that was just a small book called Back to Butter. And so writing like that and getting recipes put together is something that I always just have enjoyed. So I think I always had the idea of someday I want to do an Apricot Lane Farms cookbook, but there just wasn't time. And I think at some point I sort of questioned, is that ever, am I ever going to come back to that? Maybe I was meant to just go off in the farming direction. But mm -hmm. um, when the film came out, I was approached to do it and it felt like maybe I can make this happen with the right team. So I never thought I would work with a writer because that was a very scary thing to me to, I'm maybe a little too controlling <laughs> to think that I could do that, but it was the right person. Sarah Owens is a really amazing culinary cookbook author and she uh, she's won a James Beard Award for her book, Sourdough, which brought a lot to me because I, being largely grain-free for, I don't know, maybe almost two decades, a long time. I've not eaten a lot of grain. It was really fun to start to play back in that space. And I learned so much from her. But then her style of writing, I mean, she just understands what we are. And so though, of course, you still have to write a lot when you work with someone else, she was able to go around to our team and collate so much information because I really wanted this project to feel like a a reflection of our team here and the knowledge of our team, because there's so many people with different varying views on the project that we do. And then from there, we have an amazing culinary team here that I've worked with since the early days. We've had um, uh, people experimenting with our food since, you know, maybe the second year that we, I was doing it the first year and then mm -hmm. with someone else, maybe starting about the second year. And there's recipes that evolved out of that. I mean, I remember in the first years we were 
making uh, a lot of fruit butters and one of those strawberry apple butter with vanilla is in the book. I used to make this avocado pudding for all sorts of different events on the farm and that's in the book. We had a Brazilian chef here for a while and she was amazing and there's a cassava flour tortilla that did evolve from her recipe but she was the she brought cassava to us way before cassava became kind of cool. <laughs> that's just in the Brazilian culture and and then there's a carnitas recipe that we feed because our team, our culinary team feeds lunch and um, dinner to our princesses, but lunches to a rotation of our staff on Monday oh, through Thursday. Nice. And so a lot of those recipes came from what we do there. And then beyond that, we just sat down and said, what let's look at our availability lists our you know lists of what we produce each month and let's make this book a reflection of that cycle and and then the good thing about california is that our ecosystem can reflect the foods available across the country because california you can grow virtually anything which is like our blessing and our curse <laughs> right we <laughs> but, feed everybody <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so it's and then there's another piece of it that's so exciting because a former gardener of ours is an amazing fine artist, Andy Reville, and she worked with us to illustrate all of the avocados on the farm, all of the chickens oh. on the farm, all of the citrus on the farm, and some step-by-step -step illustrations in our larder section that describes different techniques. So it has depth there too. So I think that's what was the fruit of the, the book was that it was this like collaboration over 10 years. And when it finally came out and I held it in my hand, it was, I felt so good because I felt like I had almost like a scrapbook for our team to just say, this is what we've done all these years. And then of course we get to share it, which is equally fun. Yeah. I didn't know about the illustrations as well. Cause I was looking at the, at the chicken illustrations and the avocados and I'm like, Oh, I love that so much, but it's so nice to hear the backstory behind the book and how it does reflect the whole team because it isn't just you and your husband. It's no. there's so many people behind the scenes. Um, I also love that the book is divided much like your farm. You've got the larder, the garden, the pasture, the orchard, and you mentioned the chickens. I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about them. And I love that you incorporate so many different breeds. So what was what's the thought process there? Well, like anything that we do, um, diversity is important. So when you get different breeds in there you strengthen the immunity of that um that flock and so um and it's fun because we truly john and i are artists at heart and um our egg boxes we look like we look at them as though they're kind of a palette uh -huh. and so it are when someone buys our eggs it has all the different colors because a chicken if for those of the, you that may not know, they a chicken will lay one color for its life. So when you have one breed of chicken, you get one type, unless they're Easter eggers, because those might have multiple colors within uh. that. And, <laughs> um, but the, for the most part, that's what it is. So we have many and really kind of think about what breeds we're bringing in to have it represent that in our egg boxes. And so that's fun. And then they all have varying personalities, which we talk about in the book. There's descriptions of the different chickens that we've had and stories about certain characters that have evolved out of those. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that all the recipes in the book that are chicken-based, they're developed for pastured hens because we do have roasters as well as egg layers 
and the roaster chickens, they're in movable coops and they get more exercise than what a conventional chicken mm-hmm. would get. And so therefore you have to treat their meat more like, um, like a tougher cut because they're muscles muscles. Mm -hmm. and so you'd treat it like a shoulder cut on another animal or something like that and so you typically do like a low and slow technique to get that chicken to be as tender as anything else so oh that explains why i see a lot of braising happening yeah a lot of braising yeah okay very (laughs) cool you can roast it too you just do it uh you just do it lower and slower Oh, I also loved um, the pickle deviled eggs with beets, horseradish, honey, and crispy skin. I feel like that's another example, another good example of how so many elements of the farm work together in this one recipe. Mm, That's fun. Yeah, it really is. And that recipe came from um, inspiration. My mom just always made pickle beets and eggs growing up. And uh, so... Yeah, it's just something that I've always loved. But to turn those into a deviled egg was really fun. And then who doesn't love a little crispy chicken skin? You know, it's like the best part. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then you mentioned keeping a larder. I feel like that's something that's not common practice anymore in modern life. But what are some ways that regular people can keep their own larder? Yeah, I mean, truly making fermented foods is like an amazing practice that adds so much to digestion. And uh, I've had people on our, on Saturdays, we have a farm stand from March to November here on the farm. And so I get to talk to the public a lot there. And um, I've had several people come up to me and say, you know, all I did was I added like a fermented sauerkraut into my diet. I'll take like a tablespoon every meal and my digestion has improved so much. Mm-hmm. And and that's truly the case. We, ser- we serve sauerkraut at every meal that's served our barn lunches. And that's something that you just need a head of cabbage and salt and water to be able to make. And then if you do grow your cabbage, it's an amazing way to store that and you do refrigerate it after a certain period of time, but it lasts, you know, a super long time. So that's great. And then I just, in general, my approach to food is that when you do cook in this way, uh, like for example, grains, nuts, and seeds, you have to soak nuts first for proper digestion. So we kind of prepare things when there's time so that then when you're cooking, it's not so difficult. So like when I, I get, my almonds from a biodynamic farm in California. That's really great. And so when I get their box of almonds, we will soak those in salt water and dehydrate those right away and then store them in the the either fridge or freezer mm-hmm. so that then when you're ready to cook, it's like right there. And that's where a larder is the kind of development of all those pieces. If you work those into life rather than the moment that you have to start cooking, it not only is really enjoyable, just like for your family and your own kind of like slowing down rhythm of being, of creating connection, which is so much of what we need in this world. The process of making an actual sourdough bread enriches your life so much just through literally the rhythm of the practice of doing it. And it um, definitely were kind of people that don't spend a lot of time out at night, but <laughs> some extra time in that way. But, uh, but yeah, so that's something that we, a larder is something I always have ongoing. Yeah. That's I, it's something I need to work on too. I have so many questions, but I'm going to 
bring it down because I know we're running low on time. So the holidays are upon us. What will be on your holiday table? Can we expect anything from the book in there? Yeah. So um, let's see. I got to think about that. Well, one thing is we do raise turkeys right now. I don't know if we'll keep doing it because it might not be in our future, but we have them this year. So we will have an apricot lane turkey at our table. And then I got to think of what is specifically in there. There's one recipe right now that's super nice. That's like a carrot and beet salad that's super, super simple, but it so nicely features those root vegetables and adds like a pop of color on your your table, which is amazing. Right now, we have a bunch of avocados that have just come in. It's a couple trees we didn't actually know we had stepped in that we just have. So we have an abundance. So it enables us to make, uh, we have an amazing avocado ice cream in the book. And that was a request from my husband. He wanted a dairy-free avocado ice cream. And so we fiddled and fiddled and ended up using a lot of farm fresh eggs, which adds such nice color to it. And it's so creamy and delicious. So I think we'll probably end up doing something like that. But otherwise, I need to actually like give it some thought with the (laughs) holidays. I haven't gotten to my menu planning yet, but I need to. Well, yeah, I, I always, honestly, I leave that to the last minute. I am the worst when it comes to planning the Thanksgiving menu, even though most of it's the same. I try to do a couple of new things. So I will definitely look at your book for inspiration. Okay. Before I let you go, one more question. And then I have some closing questions. What are some tips that you can share just for sourcing the best produce you can possibly find? I recognize not everybody is going to raise their food, nor do they have to. And really it's, it's your local farmer's market. I mean, that's like such a great way to um, connect to your farmer, understand you can talk to the, talk Mm -hmm. to them then because food, it should really have an element of trust to it. If you're going to be putting that in your body, you might want to know kind of what their integrity is. And whenever you are at a farmer's market, you get a chance to gauge that, which is great. And then there definitely are some online companies that do a great job with doing some pastured meats and things like that. So if you want to get in, because such a you know, healthy animal is healthy you uh, in a lot of ways. And when they're confined and have inflammation in their body, that's not perhaps the type of meat that we want to be eating. And if you can find good grass-fed and pastured meat, online, that's a wonderful way. Or if you're trying to do it in a more fiscally responsible way, you perhaps could find a local farmer who is raising that type of meat, you can buy more of an animal and either share that with someone else or store that. That's a great way to do it. I did that before we started the farm. The sources section in the book definitely has some directions that way. There's a wonderful organization called the Weston Price Foundation, who I know has a list of farmers in that, that you can find from your state. And that's a great way to get connected into people who are um, thinking about the soil and thinking about the health of the animals. But food, it does need to come up in our priority list as far as caring about where it came from. And so those, yeah, those are some easy, great ways. Really great ways and good tips too. Okay. So before I let you go, a few closing questions. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency dinner? Well, I have a wonderful woman named Myrna who works with me and helps me with all things so that I can be mom and farmer and all the things. And she makes the most amazing pork. And it's literally just kind of like cooked down onions with um, the pork and she'll keep it in the fridge for me. And so when I'm super tired, 
I always have, this is like the larder idea. I've uh-huh. pre-prepared rice that I soaked overnight and cooked in chicken stock. I always have that in the fridge. And then I have the pork and I just mix those two together, throw some avocado, throw some fresh veg that I might have on the side and that's dinner. Oh, that sounds delicious. I'm like, yeah. I want that for breakfast. Actually, I haven't eaten yet. <laughs> that's good too. Yeah. Throw an egg on that and then you're done. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. What's the one tr- uh, recipe that you treasure the most? One recipe I treasure the most. Well, we have an oven roasted chicken um, that's in there. I can't recall the exact name of it, but that is one we probably serve weekly. And that was the process of figuring out like a pastured bird and how can you get like, the crispy skin and the good moist meat and everything from um, from that pasture bird. And so that has a lot of history to it because it took us a long time to figure that out. And I love it so much because I eat it once a week. So that would be my answer on that one. Oh, sounds good. Can't go wrong with a roast chicken. Yes. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? I think we probably can guess the answer to that. <laughs> well, actually, what would be your guess? I am guessing meats. That's so awesome. So I, I would say I'm somewhat so hmm, I'm somewhat in the middle because like my mom who I wrote my first book with long ago she is really really neat and so I kind of thought I was really neat but then as I come into my own I'm a bit messy in creation but then I always have like a clean cutting board in the process and I always will like stop and reset myself and get everything back to a basis but Mm -hmm. in the middle of creation, I'm a little crazy. Oh, that's so fun to hear. I guess yeah. that's a bit of your creativity coming yeah. through. Exactly. I'm sort of in the middle too yeah. at this point in my life. Yeah. Um, what's a good kitchen tip that you can share? Good kitchen tip. Oh man, it probably does go back to soaking those nuts because mm. if you eat a soaked nut that like a walnut, walnut is the best example. If you get a walnut, and just eat it and then soak that walnut in salt water and then you can dry it out the the recipe for it's in the book either in the oven on the lowest temperature or in a dehydrator that walnut is going to taste completely different and it's so delicious and creamy has none of that bitter so Mm. that's something i don't think people do a lot and it's good it adds the culinary and the nutrition to it okay i'm definitely going to try that and then every week i try to share five little things what's and it's, sim- it's usually something that just makes me smile that week. Is there something that made you smile this week? Something that made me smile. Well, we have an amazing uh, program on the farm called the Farm School that's up. Actually, I have two things. So we have amazing program Farm School. And I got to go up yesterday um, and watch the kids were like giving this little presentation at the end of the school day. And it was just amazing. These kids are like learning in connection with the natural world, which is so fun. And their little personalities are so expressed due to that, <laughs> just having a different kind of attention setting in that small 10 person classroom. So that made me smile. And we also, something I'm excited about that we have right now is we just launched a pomegranate lemonade. And Ooh. I love our first lemonade, but this lemonade, I truly has trumped it for me. It's so delicious. So that's kind of been a little pop of excitement in my life. Uh, That's my son's favorite drink. He's going to love that. And I have to say, I'm so glad that you're working with the school kids because whenever I visit farms and do media tours and things like that, I always think our kids need to see this because they do not, they will never appreciate their food until they see how it's produced and all the hard work that goes into it. So I'm glad that 
they're getting those light bulb moments at your farm. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's definitely a wonderful, something that I truly adore. Yeah. Well, Molly, I had a blast talking to you today and I would love for everyone to find you and learn more about Apricot Lanes and your cookbook. So please tell everyone where they, where they can find you. Yeah, sure. So we have our website is apricotlanefarms.com. Uh, we put a lot of energy into our social media, like on Instagram is at apricotlanefarms. And there is how we truly try to share some of the knowledge that we're garnering over the years. So I encourage people to check that out. They can sign up for our newsletter, which is how you find out about events first, because the events do sell out pretty quickly, but those newsletter people get the first shot at it. So yeah, that's where we are in a bookstore. Uh, to find the Apricot Lane Farms cookbook wherever books are sold. It's out there right now. Yeah, it'll be a great holiday gift. <laughs> yes, sure. Love that. Well, Molly, thank you. I know you're busy, so have a great day and a great weekend. You got it, Laren. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't tell you how inspired I am by Molly and what she and John have created. Apricot Lane Farms is so much more than a farm. They research, they restore, they educate, and they inspire. I hope you check out the Apricot Lane's cookbook to get a taste of their hard work in your own kitchens. Thank you again to Molly for joining us today and to you for spending time with us and listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. Happy cooking.